There is a fairly widespread belief in the evangelical church that all one needs to do to become a Christian is to say a little prayer, Jesus save me, and then one doesn't need to worry anymore about following Christ or obeying his word. Some have labeled that misconception of what the Bible talks about faith as easy believism. It's a watered-down kind of faith. It's not really what Scripture speaks of. It's not something in church history you find. A bare faith that has no works, an intellectual acceptance of truths with no repentance from sin, no discernible change of life is not saving faith. Many there are who affirm they are Christians, but they do not walk in the footsteps of Christ. Rather, they live for monetary gain and they add a little bit of religion in. They live for sexual pleasure and maybe show up at church once in a while. Or they live for personal achievement something to raise their status in this world. This faith without works, this faith that does not follow, is not saving faith. Christ made it very clear that believing in him involved discipleship. And discipleship meant, as he said, denying self, picking up the what? The cross And following him. Real Christians follow Jesus. John 8 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If. Real Christians come to Jesus not just to get saved, but to be taught to be trained, to be changed. They seek out churches where their lives can be sanctified by the ministry of the Word of God. How many churches these days, however, teach superficially, selectively, sparingly, shallowly, sentimentally? I got carried away with the S words. (laughs) And sparsely. All that does is promote churchgoers who think they're fine with God but are not true followers of Jesus. Jesus, in Luke 6, 46, asked the crowds one day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I tell you to do? To be a Christian, you have to call Jesus Lord. Implied in that belief is that you will begin to follow him. Not perfectly, of course. You'll make many mistakes, many sins, but the direction of your life has changed. We can't offer Christ to people as Savior if we're not making it clear to them that he is Lord. Kenneth Gentry Gentry Jr. in his book, Lord of the Saved, writes, to omit Christ's office of Lord in evangelistic preaching is to divide Christ and splinter the gospel message. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross 
and come after me cannot, he said, cannot be my disciple. I guess in most countries and time periods, including the first century Israel, which we're studying, the common and ardent opposition to any follower of Christ made it evident that anyone who would step forward for public baptism would pay the price. It started from the beginning, not towards the end. It started at the beginning. To come to Christ then was to accept loss in the world. Yet Christ still taught in Matthew 10, 38, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Picking up the cross and following Christ is the quintessential call to discipleship. A cross is not, as some have interpreted it to be, the many hardships of life that we all bear. Everybody has hardships. Unbelievers have hardships. A cross is not some sickness or tragedy or difficult people in your life to deal with. The cross was a symbol of pain, humiliation, and most importantly, a cruel death. Jesus said, that's what you have to pick up at the beginning if you want to be my disciple. None of the disciples of Jesus would have understood picking up the cross in any other way. Criminals and insurgents were crucified publicly. The Romans did this to intimidate their enemies. The use of the cross, the stauros, in crucifixion meant death by execution. Crosses literally lined the roads in Israel at various times in the first century. They were seen by every Jew. They knew what a cross was. It wasn't ornate. It was blood-stained. The cross was the object of the most intense horror for first century people. Nothing was more feared. Nothing. To end your life that way was the worst. It wasn't a quick death, as we know. Nothing was more demeaning than that than to nail a naked man to a tree and have him suffer in front of others. It was beyond cruel and unusual punishment. It was the essence of Roman brutality. Yet Jesus summoned every last one of his followers to full and complete commitment to total self-denial in our pursuit of him, the Lord Jesus, and what he gives everlasting life. When Jesus called you to follow him and to believe in him, he was calling you to be willing to die for his name. That is the central heart attitude of the disciple of Jesus, a willingness, if called upon, to die for your Lord. Death to self is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. People have so many definitions of a Christian today. But there is the core of it. It's not self-esteem. It's death to self. Paul expressed it best in Galatians 2.20 and personally. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Discipleship unto death is seen in the tribulation saints in Revelation 12.11. It says about them, they did not love their life even when faced with death. You see, hate your life, choose Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus promised his disciples, he who loses 
His life, for my sake, will find it. He didn't leave us without reward. You go and you suffer the worst. I promise you the best. And no one will ever take it away from you. The first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen. He understood the cost. He also understood the reward of a disciple. And we're privileged today, and I hope we can do it justice, to read of his amazing model discipleship in Acts 7, 54 through 60. I'll read it. Now, when they heard this, that's the Sanhedrin council listening to Stephen preach his long sermon. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The importance of this episode of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin and Stephen's stoning to follow is obvious by the amount of tension that Luke, the writer of Acts, gave to it. This paragraph we just read brings Luke's history of the church in Jerusalem to its climax. Much of the rest of the story of Christianity in the book of Acts by eyewitnesses pivots on what happened to Stephen. The entire Jerusalem church will be forever changed because of this one incident. Indeed, the spread of Christianity is ensured, ironically, by this act of evil. And make no mistake about it, this was an act of evil. This is a passage about good and evil. If you like stories about good and evil, you have one here. And it's laid bare for everybody to see what these men were actually like. There's no mistaking it at all. You know how it is with sophisticated people who can look really good on television? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, they have so much compassion for those that are downtrodden. They're so knowledgeable, so self-controlled. They're erudite. You know how it is, but put them into the right situation and put the pressure on them. When they are exposed, then we know who they really are. That's what happened to these men. Their true colors came gushing out. The contrast between sinful men when pressured by truth that exposes them to that of a true disciple, a true Christian, when empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the sharpest contrast on earth. Stephen's sincere 
and committed discipleship shines like a comet on a blackened sky. We look at these disgusting, hypocritical unbelievers and we see this glorious saint of God. In this passage, Luke kind of points the camera first at the sinners, then back on the saint, then back to the sinners, then back to the saint. And as the camera goes back and forth, we see the contrast. We're meant to see that contrast. That's exactly what God wants us to see in this passage. Luke, of course, ends with a focus on the saint so we can see this is quintessential discipleship. This is what it means to follow the master all the way to the end. And so we're going to follow Luke's camera flashes back and forth today. First, the lens is focused on the sinners. Look at verse 54 again. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. So behold, there they are, the sinners. Get a good look at them so you know who they really are like on the inside. Notice the little connection. It says they heard this. What was it that Stephen just finished saying? Remember, he recounted all of Israel's history defending himself and his honor. But in verses 51 through 53, he accused the rulers of the Jews of four things, being stubborn and stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit, imitating their evil ancestors who killed the prophets of God, and then fourth, wasting their privilege by not keeping the law of God. At this point, when Stephen said those four things, they felt, in their view, Stephen had gone too far. They could tolerate him and his words no more. They were cut to the quick. That literally means they were sawn in two. They were rent in half in their heart. Stephen's words cut them deeply. The preaching of the Word of God exposed them exactly for who they were. And without a hint of repentance, without a hint of sorrow, they had an acute and a violent reaction to this man of God. They began gnashing their teeth. That is an expression of extreme anger. Their jaws were set backward. Their teeth were gnashing. I wonder if their fists were clenched. They were filled with rage collectively. You know, often in the Old Testament, gnashing the teeth was associated with the wicked who hated the righteous. Psalm 37, verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. Lamentations 2.16, all your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They're angry. Jesus, on numerous occasions, used this very expression to remind all those who refused to follow him and bow their knees to him and obey God that they would end up in hell and there they would gnash their teeth. They would weep and they would gnash their teeth. As in Matthew 25, 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, 51, they will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, hell will be filled with very sad and intensely angry people. There will be no parties in hell. People all around us today who think they're good people will be exposed by the Word of God. They run from churches and run from Bible today, but they will be exposed by the Word of God. Severe judgment, as the book of Revelation proves, never causes obstinate sinners to repent. Instead, what happens when the Word of God comes to them? What happens when the judgment of God begins to fall on them? They get angrier. They blaspheme God. The Honorable Sanhedrin Council 
was burning with rage at this dear saint of God. They demonstrated a visceral and emotional reaction against Stephen's words. Their motives were exposed. Reminiscent of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It has been said that anger is the wind that blows out the mind. In this case, a calm, deliberative body just had a hurricane-force wind blow out their minds, blow away their ability to think, explode in anger. In modern vernacular, they lost it. Second, Luke skillfully swings the camera over to the saint in verses 55 and 56, if you'll notice. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here the saint is in communion with God on his final day of life. Stephen is afforded a rare glimpse, rare glimpse of the highest heaven. It says he gazed intently. His eyes were riveted on heaven. He was seeing something, and everyone that looked in his face could tell that. Like Abraham, he just finished preaching about. Stephen saw the heavenly glory of God, a rare privilege for a saint on earth. This was direct, special revelation from God. Stephen now steps into the role of a prophet who receives revelation from God, privileged to witness realities beyond this physical dimension. The heavens were opened up, dianoigo, a perfect passive verb that means that God ripped them open so that his normal eyes could now behold and see realities that are always there, but we're not allowed to see them. He gazed and he saw and he got to witness formally before the entire nation what he saw. Though we're all saints in Christ, holy ones, clothed in the righteousness of our Savior, Stephen here received the beatific vision, the sight of God in heavenly glory, even before he was carried to heaven. This is so special. With this sight of God and sight of Jesus in heavenly splendor and majesty, he has already begun to lose touch with this earth. Like the song we sometimes sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, you know it, right? Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, if we could just see it. We always want to see, right? He did. Stephen saw, Stephen actually saw the glory of God. No one has seen God at any time, it says in John 1.18. That is in his essence. But some saints, like Stephen, were allowed to see God in some heavenly form, to see the radiant, shining, brilliant glory of God. We are promised that too, beloved. Did you know that? 1 John 3, 2, we know that when Christ appears, we will be changed to be like him because we will see him just as he is. The beatific vision transforms us. One look and we're changed. That's in our future. In this vision, that glory of God is spilling over onto Jesus who is at his right hand. From this, we instantly surmise two truths about the blessed doctrine of the Trinity. 
Jesus and God the Father are not the same person. That should be obvious. They are two distinct persons. And Jesus shares the glory with his Father. For Jesus of Nazareth is with God in the highest heaven. And the sight of the glory of God contains the sight of Jesus. They go together. Indeed, Jesus is definitively stationed at the right hand of God. Of course, you know the right hand of a king in ancient days was the place of great, great privilege. It was a place of highest privilege in all of the kingdom. It was also the place of authority in the kingdom. Stephen is alluding to the prophecy in Psalm 110, which King David wrote, speaking of his future and greater son, David understood when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my, what? Right hand, right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you know that Jesus, before the Sanhedrin council, when he was there and he was going through his trial, he testified that he was going to the right hand? In Luke twenty two sixty nine 69, during the trials, he said, from now on, the Son of Man, that's the favorite designation that Jesus had for himself, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That was a warning to the council. They didn't take it. Now Stephen says to that very same council, the same men, you killed Jesus. He told you he was going to the right hand of the Father, I'm telling you, I see him now at the right hand of the Father. God has already exalted him there. Brothers, in terms of theological formation, remember this is very early in church history, not more than two or three years since the start of the church, and you can already see for yourself that the earliest Christian church had an extremely high view of Jesus. The idea that the church later invented the deity of Jesus is refuted by multiple early Christological passages within the New Testament in the first century, like this one. The doctrine of the divinity of Jesus does not come from later church history, but from the church's founding documents in the first century. Here is a clear picture of Jesus at the right hand of God, sharing God's glory. Here, Stephen even attributes the right to forgive sins, which only God can do to Jesus as he calls on Jesus both to receive his spirit, which only God can do, and to forgive the sins of his murders, which only God can do. And this was a stunningly dramatic moment. The importance of this moment must not be overlooked. Stephen was allowed to bear direct eyewitness to the highest Jewish council of what he saw. Jesus of Nazareth standing as the Messiah of Israel in the heavens at God's right hand. Notice the heavens is plural. The heavens were opened up. His eyes got to gaze all the way into the very throne room of God. He saw not just Jesus raised from the dead. He saw Jesus exalted to the right hand. Not even the 12 apostles had seen this. And he called Jesus by his own favorite designation, I see the Son of Man standing. That is a title that instantly bore testimony not only to Jesus' deity but to his true humanity. But more than that, he's not just a Son of Man, he is the Son of Man, a reference to Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 of that heavenly figure that was empowered by the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom that would never end and to come back into this world, return in all of his power and glory and establish the kingdom of God on earth. This designation, the Son of Man, had eschatological significance. 
It demonstrated Jesus was receiving all power from the Father. He was stationed there at the right hand until a point came and he would return to earth, take up his throne in Jerusalem, the very city in which they were conducting that council. There's been much discussion as to why Jesus was standing at the right hand instead of sitting. Some believe it doesn't really have any significance. Others believe it shows that Jesus was rising off of his throne to receive the first Christian martyr to his side, the great shepherd tenderly caring for his sheep. Others think the standing demonstrates that Jesus was ready to return to Jerusalem if the Jews in mass would repent and they would receive his kingdom. He was off his throne. He was poised and ready to bring the full kingdom to them at that point. That the witness of the apostles constantly to Israel were giving them the chance to receive what the prophecies had told them they would get. I think those are both possible. Maybe the best answer is that Jesus was arising as judge to defend Stephen's honor against the Sanhedrin. Jesus rising to stand was a threat to the would-be condemners of Stephen that they will have Jesus to reckon with one day if they condemn him. In other words, it is not Stephen who was on trial that day, but Israel's leadership. And they would not be the rightful judges Jesus was. That view fits well even with the title, the Son of Man, who is the one who will come to reign. And of course, kings also bring judgment. Well, the implications of a Jew from Nazareth being exalted to the right hand of God was not missed by these Jewish leaders. Notice next, our third focus shifts back to the sinners, verses 57 and 58. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This got ugly quickly. The words of Stephen got through and their response was about as intense as it can be. Whatever moderate voices that once restrained the Sanhedrin against the Christians are now lost in a cacophony of rabid shouts to eliminate this man. They moved with one impulse to have Stephen killed for what they perceived as blasphemy. Luke describes an all-out loss of self-control. Notice they cried out with a loud voice. They were screaming at Stephen. They covered their ears so they wouldn't hear any more blasphemy, thus proving Stephen's words right that he just finished saying that they really were uncircumcised in their ears and they really did resist the Holy Spirit and they really were uncircumcised in heart. See, God always knows what's going on inside of people, doesn't he? And what is going on in the heart of non-Christians, unbelievers, is never good. Don't ever call unbelievers good. They're not. We're barely good. And only because of the grace of Christ, right? Put that unbeliever down the road that's so nice does nice things for you in your garden or whatever, put him in the right situation and you'll see the same kind of thing coming out of him. These were highly respected men in their society. They had great learning. They were educated. They had great self-control. Polite manners, social skill, good jobs, 
Their homes probably looked nice. God exposed them by the preaching of his word. It is always the mark of godless people that they will not even listen to the word of God. They will not even consider that is they who are wrong, not God. Proud men always condemn others while they commit worse sins. So they rushed on him in one impulse. It is instructive how differing factions on the Sanhedrin could come together in unison to kill Jesus and now to kill one of Jesus' best-known disciples. Evil finds a way to unite in their common hatred of God. That's what's going to happen in the end times, right? The world will unite. The stuff about nations working together is not something good. It's not something good. Clearly, they lost all semblance of righteousness and self-control. Like Proverbs 19.3, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. In a hypocritical external show of keeping the law of Moses so they could maintain their religiosity, they dragged Stephen outside the city. They weren't allowed to stone inside the city. Again, it's the mark of proud men to keep the outward veneer of right behavior while violating the very spirit of it. What did Jesus say? They strain out gnats and what? Swallow camels. They're sticklers when it comes to the smallest things of the law. They think they're applying the word of God well. But their actions are the complete opposite of justice, complete opposite of loving truth. And in the midst of all of this, Luke introduces rather skillfully, I think, a young man named Saul, who will later become who? The Apostle Paul. Paul will become the central figure in the spread of Christianity in the second half of this book. Here he is called a young man. That means maybe in his 20s or 30s or early 40s. Saul was a Benjamite, probably named after the king of Israel from that tribe and of that name. Here Paul is, Saul is clearly in favor of the stoning of Stephen. He is in favor of the killing of this righteous man. No, more than that. Saul looks like he was in some kind of a leadership role in carrying out the persecution against this man. For it says they laid their cloaks at his feet, took the coat off so they could get a good aim with a rock, stretch a little, get their rock, and be able to deliver it as hard as they wanted to. Laid it right at the feet of Saul as if he was in charge, as if he was standing there very proudly and approving of the death of this man. We forget that when Paul said that he did not deserve to be an apostle because he was a violent aggressor, that that was true. Well, fourth, Luke turns the camera back to the saint in verses 59 and 60. It says, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He wanted everyone to know that he was forgiving them. He cried it out. And having said this, with forgiveness on his lips and in his heart, he fell asleep. You see the contrast? 
in an amazing contrast. In contrast to their violent hatred and irrational mindset, Stephen is serene, he's composed, he's loving, he's forgiving, he's worshipful. Stoning was the prescribed way of putting someone to death in the law. The Jews mentioned this even to Jesus in John 10, 33. This stoning is in the imperfect tense in the Greek verb showing the constant throwing of the stones one after another until he fell to his knees and they kept pelting him until he died. This brings out their hypocrisy again, following the details of keeping the law while killing a righteous man. Some have asked how it is that the Jews who were so bold in this situation to carry out a capital punishment were not allowed to do that. It was reserved for the Romans. After all, they were not able to put Jesus to death when they wanted to, but they had to bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, and insist that he be crucified. But even though the Sanhedrin is involved with this, please notice there was no verdict given by the high priest. There was no natural conclusion to this trial. The high priest presided over the Sanhedrin. There's no finality here. There's no deliberation. There's no, take the prisoner out, let's talk about it. They got up, maybe with others that were around them, and they rushed upon Stephen and they dragged him outside the whole city for stoning. This was not a trial at this point. This was a mob lynching. There was no official pronouncement of his guilt. They just lost it. What started as a legal examination ended with mob justice. So I don't think they were even thinking about that at this point. Please see how this dear believer walked in the footsteps of his master. In his death, he put his foot in the foot of Jesus very, very exactly. He purposefully imitated Jesus in his death. Jesus, at his death, called on the Father. Stephen, at his death, called on his Savior. Jesus, on the cross, prayed the Father would forgive his murders, and many believe that that centurion was saved because of Christ's prayer. Stephen prayed the same. Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. Stephen did the same. Both died trusting in the one who judges rightly, unlike the human court, which had savagely killed them. Some say the conversion of Saul in chapter 9 is Christ's answer to Stephen's prayer. Don't hold this sin against them. Dr. MacArthur believes that. He writes, Stephen's profound and powerful sermon, as well as his calmness and forgiving love for his killers, made a lasting impression on Saul. So Stephen gave his life for Christ. Stephen gave his last breath for his Savior, a Savior who had bled and died for him. The master dying for the servant, the servant picking up the cross, then dying for the master. And thus, Stephen fell asleep. 
Please note the contrast between his body and his soul. Stephen asked for his spirit to be received by Jesus. So his spirit immediately went consciously into the presence of God. The Bible does not teach soul sleep at death, but of going instantly into the presence of Christ if we're saved. But Stephen's body was then said to fall asleep. That is a euphemism for Christian death. It's used as such in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. When the body dies, it looks like it is asleep. And in the Christian sense, it is asleep. For the body gets laid whole in the ground as if it's going to sleep, following the pattern of Jesus' burial. And the body then whole is raised on the last day. It's just a time of sleep. It will be the same body that was laid to rest in the ground that will be raised from the dead. I don't think anyone ever died with more calm and peace than this man, Stephen. Lest you feel sorry for him, consider that he got to preach the word of God to all of the leaders I can't think of a better way of going out than dying while you're preaching. He got to see heaven's glory opened up. He got to see his Savior standing in glory, ready to receive him. He got to fall asleep with that in mind, and since we don't actually experience death, he went from that sight and that vision right into his presence, seeing him even closer up. He never really experienced death. Death was but a quick door into instant glory. This passage was not given to us to help us seek out martyrdom, but it is there to tell us that when Jesus bids us follow him, that might be what we face. We need to be ready to die for our Savior. Jumping 170 years into the future, I would like to end by relating the story of two African believers who died for the cause of Christ, who were violently treated for their Christian faith, and who bore it with great grace and beauty because they knew of the glory and the triumphs to come. The account that I'm reading comes from Fox Voice of Martyrs. The names, it's really on three ladies, but I'm going to read the part about two of them, Perpetua and Felicity both women. Perpetua bravely held Felicity in her arms, anticipating their death together as sisters in Christ. The bull's horns had already wounded Felicity, and the crowd wanted the coup de grace. Then, abruptly and inexplicably, the bull stood still. The crowd hushed. This animal was not following the script. Now the crowd let loose with demands for blood and gladiators rushed forward to finish the work. Felicity died quickly. When Perpetua's executioner hesitated, she herself helped guide his blade into her body. These were young girls, teenage women. The Colosseum had never before seen such a spectacle. Perpetua came from a wealthy family. Her father was pagan, but her mother and brothers were Christians. Perpetua had a nursing baby at the time of her arrest for confessing Christ. Her father urged her to renounce faith for his sake and for her family, 
Even Roman authorities urged her to offer a simple sacrifice to Roman power. She refused. She would not renounce Christ as Lord, claiming that the name that belonged to her was the name of a Christian. Felicity was a slave and pregnant. Since Roman law prohibited the execution of pregnant women, sentence was delayed. Felicity gave birth in prison to a baby girl that would be adopted by Christians. When prison guards wondered how she would handle facing beasts in the arena, especially so soon after her child's birth, she responded, Now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. These two women found, these two women from different classes showed fortitude, determination, and remarkably even joy at the prospects of public humiliation and suffering. Several times they refused offers of acquittal and ignored pleas to save themselves. Together they clung to heavenly hope and to each other for endurance through the ordeal. Rather than acquiesce to Roman demands, they asked to be baptized while in prison. They were new believers. Perpetua stated, the dungeon is to me a palace. Amazingly, when Perpetua was told beasts would devour her, she and her companions returned to prison in high spirits at the prospect of death for the glory of God. Three men imprisoned with them were forced to run the gladiator gauntlets. Two were killed by beasts. One was beheaded. As for Perpetua, she was the picture of poise in the center of chaos and blood. When the bull tossed her but did not hurt her, Perpetua's hair came undone. She asked to be allowed to put her hair up because undone hair was a sight of mourning. But this was a day for triumph and joy. When Ignatius was being brought to Rome to be killed by the wild animals and he knew he was facing death, he wrote around 110 AD, now, now I begin to be a Christian. We have a lot to learn, do we not? Myself included. God, may you grant us grace to know what it means to walk in the footsteps of our blessed and wonderful and loving Savior. May you remind anyone here who thinks they're a good person that they're under your judgment. And may you remind anybody that thinks that they've believed in Jesus but they're not following in the footsteps that they're not saved. And it's better for them to hear it now than to hear your rejection then. We pray, Father, from our leaders down that you help us to have fortitude and faithfulness through and through that we might be good examples of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.